Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Landlord Law podcast. And my guest today, who is Robin Stewart, who's a solicitor at Anthony Gold. So, Robin, can you introduce yourself and tell people what you do? Yeah, hello, everyone. I'm Robin. Uh, as, as I said, I'm a, I'm a solicitor at Anthony Gold. I specialise in property litigation, but in particular, uh, residential landlord and tenant and the regulatory side of that, the, the regulation, particularly of the private rented sector. So I, I have a really interesting mix of, of casework because I get to do litigation in the civil courts, the criminal courts, the tribunals, and I get to look at the private rented sector from, from every angle. I think there can't be many solicitors who get to work with such a, a diverse range of clients because there's obviously so many different angles for legal problems in the PRS, um, whether it's individual tenants or or huge companies. And it's um, it's a privilege to get to work with all with all sides, I think. Why don't you give us um, some examples of the sort of cases you do? Obviously not mentioning any names, but just sort of discussing the, the issues and the sort of things that you do. Sure. Um, I do uh, possession work. Um, it tends to be the more complicated ones where it's gone wrong before and perhaps someone's having a, a second yeah. go or, or an appeal. What are the problems that you find that people make? I think there's a perception that after the Tricarol case, which your your listeners will know all about, mm. there's a perception that gas safety certificate problems are all resolved now, which is not the case. There's lots of other um, other questions which which weren't decided in Dracarol and all sorts of other ways for things to to go wrong. So that's still a big part of of Section Twenty One mm. um, for for as long as it remains with us. So what sort of issues are that? I mean, for example, I don't think the Tricarol case resolved the situation where you don't serve the gas safety certificate when you haven't got one when they mm. first went in. I mean, is is that a problem? Is that going to block them forever from Section 21? Well, we've still got it, of course. Well, what makes this an interesting area to work in as a lawyer is there's still so many huge questions like that where lots of us have an opinion. Hmm. And we have some county court decisions to point to, but nothing that's binding. There are so few senior court decisions on on really any of these questions, which means almost everything is up for up for grabs. I, I think one of the the biggest problem areas is where a, a a developer buys a property with the tenants in place, and what it means if things weren't done properly by the seller or there just aren't records of that, where that leaves the buyer. Because if we put our, our, our criminal lawyer hats on, it's obvious that the seller is not, sorry, the, the buyer is not responsible for mistakes but made by the previous landlord. It, it goes without saying. But as soon as we're looking at compliance with a, a, a Section 21 notice hat on, mm. uh, it, it's, it's very different. Yeah, and I think um, we're all used to the idea that there might be a problem with the deposit, which dates back to the previous owner. And I think um, you know, as solicitors, we're used to solving that kind of problem. Mm. But as Section 21 has become more complicated, it's become a, a much more complicated exercise to deal with the purchase of a <laughs> of a tenanted property. Yeah. 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 No, I can uh, I can see that. Right. Let's um, let's have a look at um, sort of the various developments. What do you think were the most significant things that happened last year? Let's look into the past before we look into the future. Oh goodness, I'm going to have to go and um, go and read nearly legal blog to remember what's happened last year. <laughs> what what impacted on you as being the the most significant things, or, or things that you felt were were sort of important issues that cropped up? There's I mean, no... I suppose the fact that we had the Renters Reform Bill published at all was was a bit of a significant development because we weren't sure at some stage whether whether it was going to be published or not because they kept not doing it, didn't they? I think that is the big news. And what, what was and was not in the first version of the bill was actually a huge, a huge moment. Yeah. And the the inconsistencies between what, what was in the press releases 
and what was actually in the bill uh, yeah. was was quite striking. So it, it it seems even up to the last minute, um, big big things were being dropped in and out. Um, the, the, obviously, lots being said about Section Twenty One and the Renters Reform Bill, but the part that I'm watching most carefully, really looking for clues, is the mandatory redress scheme membership for landlords. Oh yeah, because I think this is the bit which is under underrated mm. as a as a game changer, because really this amounts to mandatory registration for mm. for landlords and that's um that's language which the government has chosen to avoid the thing which i'm really watching out for is will will this new scheme have the power to exclude landlords from from the scheme because it if it has the power to do that then that effectively is a new type of banning order yeah yeah it is isn't it and that the, the schemes that apply to letting agents at the moment they can't directly enforce their awards but if you don't pay you get ejected you get blacklisted from joining the other scheme so yeah. they, they've got a pretty tough way of of enforcing their their decisions and they they try to deal with the problem of phoenix companies so they they try to stop you from simply not paying, closing your company down, popping up under a new name. If those principles were applied to private landlords, it becomes very very powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But that's one of the areas where we just haven't had much detail, yeah. and there's no sign of that really coming in anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uncertainty about it. I mean. Also, I suppose the the implementation of the Section Twenty One ban at all. You know, I mean, one minute they're saying they're not going to do it until they sort the courts out, and the next minute they say they're going to implement it before the election, which is going to be this year. So, I think there's been some some carefully chosen slippery language, mm. but at this point, there's actually not that many people left who don't want the legislation to at least be passed before the general election because if you look at what the the nrla are actually saying i think they accept that for them and their members a a version of the renters reform bill that's passed by the the current house of commons probably more in line with what they want than what would inevitably follow yeah after the after after the election so i i I'm I'm pretty sure we'll we'll have something on the statute book. It won't be in force, and then after the election, um, I, I don't think there's so it's, a, it's a fool's game to make predictions. But it's pretty clear which way the polls are pointing just now, mm. and, and it's pretty clear that um, the next government will want to put into 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 force um, parts of the renters reform bill which have been passed but not not implemented. Yeah. I mean, Angela Rayner has said that uh, they want to ban uh, Section 21, no fault evictions from the first day of the new government. I was talking to Kate Faulkner about this, and she was saying that she didn't think that actually they would be able to do that because of the way Section 21 is sort of embedded into the legislation generally. What do you think? Do you think they would actually be able to do that? Well, it depends. We might be in a position where all that's needed is a, uh, an an order made by a minister to bring to bring bring the to to start the implementation period to to bring the act actually in, into into mm. force for real. And I don't I don't think it's going to be on day one after the election. I think that's just political rhetoric. <laughs> but it it doesn't need to take years. I think it, I think it probably is a few months rather than a few weeks, but um, if if the legislation is already there and it's just waiting for someone to press go, that's that's possible. But I mean, it may affect other things. I mean, what about terms and conditions of mortgages and insurance policies? I mean, do you think it's going to affect those? Well, it it, it has to cause ripples through the rest of the economy. 
mm. but the decision's already been made really it's 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 going to happen and i can understand if they just decide to to go ahead with it do you think people are going to be I can't see how people would be in breach of mortgage conditions just because the legislative framework has has changed. No, I mean, I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing out ideas, really. Well, there'll be lots of mortgage conditions and um, rent-to-rent style leases which say properties may only be sublet under ASTs, Mm. and then you abolish the concept of an AST with the, the stroke of a pen and on the face of it everyone is in breach of those obligations but they'd have to provide for that wouldn't they mm, that's interesting I one would hope that the the lenders are already thinking about this I mean that's the sort of thing that that Kate Faulkner was was thinking about um, I mean, another thing that um, that occurred to me, there are one of the ways that regulations are enforced is through not being able to use a no fault ground for possession if you haven't complied with them. And it looks from what I've seen of the new legislation, they provided for the deposit regulations. So if you don't comply with the deposit regulations, you won't be able to use the other grounds for possession. But I mean, that leaves out things like HMO licensing, um, gas safety certificates, um, energy performance certificates, you know, the other things that they, uh, the how to rent booklet, the other things that they have. I don't think that would stop a new government from bringing these reforms into into effect because i remember before 2015 when yeah. there was there was no link between section 21 and epcs and gas safety certificates and i i think it's fair to say compliance with those obligations was a little bit more uh, relaxed but people people did comply particularly if they had a a reputable agent telling them to do it yeah. So they won't. I mean, they they won't have the the problem about not being able to use Section Twenty One because that that will have gone. Um, I suppose. I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, you had to do to be able to use Section Twenty One is you had to have got an HMO license if the property was was licensable or or any license. But of course, now I suppose that can be enforced by. Um, uh, what are they called? Um, rent repayment orders, which is uh, an area of your specialisation, isn't it? I find them absolutely fascinating because it, uh, as you say, it, it provides another way of enforcing the legislation, and it it does it does so by it, a, a tenant isn't it's not quite right to say they're the the victim of the property being unlicensed. Perhaps sometimes that's a a fair way of putting it, but it it puts enforcement of a, a criminal, criminal bit of uh, bit of law in the hands of a member of the public, yeah. and someone who, depending on how you look at it, might might be seen as the victim of of the crime, which is very different from how in- English law has has dealt with criminal enforcement for for literally for centuries. Yes, because with with uh, say for example, look at breach of HMO, not not getting an HMO license. I mean, they can be prosecuted in the magistrates' courts or have a um, a charge, penalty charge, can't you? So that's the that's the old fashioned, the traditional way of doing it, and that uh, still happens. Yeah, that that still happens, and and the rent repayment order is a sort of sort of a new process, which is where I suppose it's been brought in because local authorities are so under pressure they tend not to take action so it's difficult to really say for sure why they were brought in because parliament just passes laws and doesn't have to yeah tell us exactly why i mean they were originally brought in in 2004 weren't they and that's the system we still have in wales and then they were sort of bumped up and made made more sort of tenant friendly as it were by the um 2016 some of, the, some of the commentary from back in 2004 and the the, the passage of of that act suggested that 
rent repayment orders were there as a sort of compromise if if the rent wasn't going to be something that could be confiscated as the proceeds of crime instead we would have this mechanism for tenants to claim back some rent and so something which had a, a nod towards confiscation which you, you you would use to take a a drug dealer's um mm. a lamborghini off them to 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 get the the proceeds of the crime back um something a, a nod in that direction to say actually landlords shouldn't be making a lot of money out of unlicensed HMOs and then it's gradually expanded and i think i think you're right that the reason subsequent governments were enthusiastic about this is it's a way to deal with their being insufficient resources to mm. prosecute but then yeah. where we're left now is the tenants who are able to 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 put in an RRO application tend to be well educated and aware of their rights it's it's not it's not a fair it's not a representative sample of the whole spectrum of of tenants yeah it's not necessarily the most serious cases which result in rent repayment orders i suppose also you get the problem that tenants are worried that if they do that their landlords are going to boot them out there's there's that side of it and 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 also if a tenant is in a property and realizes it's it's an unlicensed hmo they've got every reason to wait and live there for at least a year and then start this process and that's a completely rational thing to do mm. but that that's not not good public policy really if if we want properties to be licensed so that we can yeah be confident that that they're safe we don't want to have incentives for tenants to to live there and keep quiet about the problem so i mean just explaining to people they would do that because it's a rent repayment order so they'd only get the money back if they'd actually paid it so they'd need to be there for a year to get entitled to be repaid so the, the longer the property is an unlicensed hmo yeah. the the higher the maximum possible award and as soon as the landlord makes an application for a license mm. that that stops that stops yeah. the offence and that's um so that that would cap the amount that the tenant might be able to recover so yeah keep keeping quiet and waiting until 12 months makes rational sense but mm. it's it's not it's not ideal yeah all yeah. sorts of trade-offs like this exist with rros which make them fascinating hmm give us some other examples then from your experience some of your interesting cases on rent repayment orders i think um the one of the things which it makes an rro different from a prosecution is the tenant's conduct is is something which has to be taken into account mm. when when assessing the amount of the award and the tribunals have struggled a bit with how to deal with this there are always were some cases where the tenant's conduct might be relevant so years ago i had a a prosecution case in west london where i acted for a landlord and and their defense was that in that case the tenants had sublet and allowed the property to become an hmo and they had no idea about it mm. and that went to trial and the issue at trial was really whether or not the landlord had acted reasonably and whether not knowing about the problem whether 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 that was reasonable in the circumstances and so it, it there tenants the tenant's behavior was was relevant but um relevant to a a, a specific defense in rent repayment orders the tenant's conduct is um is is always part of the mix mm. when it comes to assessing the amount of the award and it doesn't have to be things directly related to the uh the property not being licensed so I mean there were, there, I mean I think I've heard one case where the um I can't remember the names of the cases there was one case where the award was reduced because they hadn't allowed the landlord to do property inspections which which makes sense yeah um and it it must have been that that refusal to allow inspections wasn't in itself capable of 
being a defense in that particular case. Um, but it, 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 it just feels a little bit random, I suppose. Uh. Um, and because it, is that relevant to how much the landlord should be punished in that particular case? Hmm. maybe and i think judges are trying to balance that it's it's it is punishment for the landlord but it's also a bit of a windfall for the tenants yeah. so justice requires that you balance those two things just yeah that's interesting what other bad tenant things have been picked up by the courts and have been taken into account failure to pay rent well yeah because uh, it's worth well, repayment isn't well, it? <laughs> it it is but actually um there was a there was an appeal where tenants had paid their full rent for for a period of time, and then not paid rent um, yeah. either either side. And the question on appeal was: Are the tenants entitled to say we we want repayment for the period where we paid our full rent, and arrears outside of that aren't relevant? That that was the tenants' case, and and they lost. Mm. Um, so. Um, so non-payment out, out, outside could be, could be taken into account that way as well. But obviously, yeah, if, if you haven't paid, you can't have it repaid. Um, one of the controversial cases involved a tenant who was employed by the council as, as I think, as an environmental health officer. Certainly they were involved in licensing for the council. And um, reading between the lines, I, I think the suggestion was they must have known that they were living in an unlicensed property. Mm. And the original judge uh, was was very unimpressed by that and I think ordered one pound. That was overturned on appeal because the um, the tenant in that case hadn't had a proper opportunity to respond to that. Um, but that leaves a very a, a difficult question there because if a tenant is completely aware of what's going on and uh, completely aware that it's an unlicensed property and chooses not to report that in order to make to make more money, is that bad conduct? Yeah. And I, I, I've not seen any cases directly grappling with that, apart from um, this, this one case from the northeast of England. So is it is there an obligation on the tenant if they know that the property is is illegal to do something about it? But well, I mean, it, I suppose in a way, why should there be an obligation on the tenant? It's the landlord who's supposed to license it, not the tenant. I mean, looking at it from the other point of view, that, that's absolutely true. Um, but I think if if you were designing an enforcement system, yeah, would you want to design one which encouraged land encouraged tenants to and live in it? Yeah. If I if I was renting and I thought uh, I'm an RRO specialist and I I fancy living in London for free for a year, yeah. I could I could go and find a property that I thought was an unlicensed HMO and deliberately choose to move into that one and not mention not mention it to the landlord and hope they don't Google me, and then a year later apply for an RRO. Hmm. Um, that makes me really uneasy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's a very interesting point which I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought of. I think we're stuck with we're stuck with these problems though because I think everyone really accepts that RROs are here to stay. Mm. And without a massive injection of cash into local authorities and 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 it's not just cash there, there simply aren't enough people with the skills. Yeah. And um, without that we we can't go back to relying on yeah. local authorities only for enforcement and as you were saying earlier we've 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 moved some enforcement away from this sort of passive section 21 validity in, enforcement uh method yeah. so there's no going back and we're going to be stuck with this slightly bizarre situation where we've got tenants enforcing the law and and having some conflicts arising out of that. Yeah. I mean, uh, will, will the, um, the the landlord's portal thing, I mean, which we were talking about a while ago, I mean, that, that could perhaps also help with that. I, I think the relevance of that to me is, is it's an opportunity to, opportunity to empower tenants as consumers. Hmm. 
this is another area that really interests me because in all sorts of ways, landlord and tenant law and consumer law do do meet, but it's it's a fairly unexplored area. There, there aren't there aren't many cases. Mm. You don't even even county court decisions. It's very rare to to hear. I mean, the main court, well, so far as I, I, I'm aware, the, one of the main sort of areas where consumer law is really relevant is in the unfair terms rules in the mm. Consumer Rights Act. Um, I mean, judges are supposed to consider that, whether it's raised by the parties or not, aren't they? Do you find in practice that they do? It's so rare to hear about any decision from a judge at any level about unfair terms in a tenancy agreement. Hmm. And um, probably we should be hearing a lot more. There was a very interesting attempt in one of the property guardians cases from a couple of years ago mm-hmm. to to argue. I think it was about the unfairness of a deemed service clause of for 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 notices. And um, the point fell away because it was accepted that the the it was a licensee in this case. It was accepted that they had received. The notice so so actually the the clause in the contract was was academic mm-hmm. that's one of the few attempts i've seen to to really raise these issues front and center mm-hmm. um, because it, it is I th- it's cert- there's certainly i know there's been a case where it was held that the judge and i think it's maybe in the act that judges are supposed to consider the unfair terms regulations if a clause is under consideration whether it's raised by the parties or not because because in our adversarial system often things are only considered if they're raised that's exactly right the consumer rights act 2015 uh does does say somewhere i'd, I'd also have to go and look up this yeah. section um it, it definitely says it, it it's something which the judge can raise for themselves and re- realistically uh, with so many Possession cases, in particular, um, are either not defended or or dealt with without a, a lawyer for for the tenant. That's realistically how it's how it's going to happen. I'm 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 a bit surprised there isn't more um, that, that there aren't more more unfair terms challenges. It may be because the judges that are dealing with it are more generalist judges. I mean, this may be. I mean, this may be a. a uh, an argument for having a housing specialist housing court because the judges there would be trained specifically in housing law and that's all they do and it may be that they would pick these things up more i have think? a i have a less dramatic solution which um maybe one of your listeners can help me out with somebody really needs to produce an updated version of the what the Office of Fair Trading produced the guidance on unfair terms in, in tenancy agreements. Yeah, because the the one that we've got, which isn't supported anymore, dates back to two thousand and five. I mean, I know that quite well. I've got a heavily annotated, printed out version of it somewhere in my office. It's, it's a very useful document, but yeah. th- there were always parts of it that were controversial. Mm. Um, the parts, the sections on assignment in particular. Mm. Um, lots of uh, lawyers I respect simply don't agree with with what that guidance says, and then of course it predates the Tenant Fees Act, yeah. and the Rentist Reform Bill will will also make parts of it very out of date, and it predates the Consumer Rights Act, which subtly changed yeah. Yeah. the landscape. So, so someone really needs to produce a new guide, and um, yeah, if anyone if anyone knows anyone that wants to fund doing that, I'd be happy to. Happy to happy to do it because it, it it needs to be done probably after the renters reform bill comes in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be I'd be interested in having a go at that. I must say, maybe we could do it as a joint project, Robin. Uh, yeah. Because what's so good about that OFT guide is it's really practical. Yeah, it's got you know realistic clauses. It's something that really anyone can pick up and, and get some use out of. Um, yeah, it's not. I have to say, I have struggled with it on occasion it's not laid out in a particularly user-friendly way i find and they the trouble is that the the, some of the things that they discuss and that are important for the unfair terms regulations themselves are not particularly relevant to landlord and tenant i mean i haven't seen many tenancy agreements which attempt to 
um, exclude liability for, you know, sort of deaths of tenants or something, you know. So, I mean, they, they, te- they sometimes tend to focus on inappropriate things, which. Do yeah, that's, I mean? a, that's a fair criticism. I, the, something I don't love about that guidance is. Yeah. It is it is the opinion of its authors. Mm. Um, it doesn't reflect where there's genuine uncertainty. So some things we can say very confidently that that clause is is unfair and doesn't have a realistic chance of being upheld by a judge. Other ones are are, are a toss up, mm. and a really useful bit of guidance would be honest about that and say um, this one we we don't we don't know yet. Because if you're if you're a, a let's say a citizens advice bureau advisor and you know you're you're using that as a guide for you, um, so that you can in turn advise a tenant, you you want to know a, what a housing specialist has to say about about that clause and whether they're absolutely certain that it's unfair or whether they think it's it's debatable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are a few things where we know that things are unfair, like. The pets thing, you know, um, that you you should give them permission to request, which should not be unreasonably refused, which is supported by that Spanish case, which I haven't been able to find online. Actually, I've been I, looking I, for it. I saw you you put out a a, a, a request for help on yeah on, on on Twitter, but you still haven't tracked down the. I haven't tracked down. I, I I have tracked it down in the past, but it doesn't seem to be there anymore. But I mean, there are other things like um, you know, you can't have um. Uh, you can't have a break clause which only favours the landlord. I mean, that would obviously be unfair, wouldn't it? So there are some things which we know are unfair. Um, and I suppose um, a rent review clause which allowed the landlord to increase the rent to whatever they want without any um, sort of outside influence on it. But there are others which it's a toss up, really. I think some, sometimes it depends as well because um, it, closing, cl- clauses dealing with assignments and th- things of that nature, it it does depend, doesn't it? It d- depends on the circumstances. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Interesting area. Consumer law. Um, I suppose the other things with consumer law is the there's the unwinding regulations, aren't they? I mean, has have people actually unwound tenancies? Is this becoming part of tenant knowledge? Or I think the reason we hear so little about it is it's not something people are going to get legal aid for yeah. because you not... have to go to court, don't you? Well, I, I suspect where the unwinding regulations are being used where that power is being used it's being used to start negotiations in order for tenants to to get themselves out reasonably cheaply so if 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 you take on a tenancy you arrive and it's really not what you wanted if a tenant tries to tries to unwind a landlord might say yes in which case there's no dispute if they say no that's probably going to be the start of negotiations because if a tenant really doesn't want to be there and has a, a plausible basis for for escaping the tenancy through unwinding, then probably a deal can be done if a replacement tenant can be found. And so it, it, it may be that lots of people are trying to unwind their tenancies and then doing a deal where they pay something, hmm. um, but do ultimately get out of their yeah. of their tenancy i suppose this is going to be academic if and when the renters reform bill comes in because then uh, tenants will be able to uh, <clears throat> give two months notice won't they after an initial period is that right that's one of the reasons why generation rent are resisting quite quite hard uh, an attempt by some conservative backbenchers to amend the bill to allow for for fixed terms again so there's an amendment kicking around just now a proposal to to bring back in fixed terms and uh generation rent and and others i'm sure have have said that that would um it would hurt tenants because they they'd be back in this situation of struggling to get out of tenancies they don't they don't want to be in but yeah you're absolutely right because if if there's just a right to give to give notice the right to unwind is 
it's, it's less significant. Yeah, yeah, difficult problem if because because you have to consider the the interests of the landlord. I mean, from the landlord's point of view, it's quite expensive to find a tenant and to do all the referencing and and checking. And if having done all that and had all the advertising costs and everything, you know, they give notice and disappear after two months. You know, I mean, if you have a succession of people doing that, that would be very expensive from the landlord. But then from the tenant's point of view, they don't want to be forced to stay in a property that is obviously unsuitable and perhaps has been misrepresented to them. Do you think agents are going to be willing to to take the risk there, the the risk of of tenants? Signing up, staying for two months and then leaving and having to, to do it all over again, essentially. Well, I suppose agents are being paid by the landlord, so they won't lose out financially in the way the landlords will, will they? Well, I guess it, it, it depends on their charging structures. Yeah. And, and their whole model is, in a yeah. way, built around only taking an, uh, an amount of, of, of that risk. And so getting rid of fixed-term tenancies means a lot of head-scratching for agents about how they want to structure their charging. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, it comes down to who is taking on what risk, because it, you can you can look at an agent's commission, and uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's just an amount of money which is structured as a commission. You, you could call it a lump sum, um, and, and some agents particularly online-based ones do. Mm. Um, um, but it, in the end, um, someone someone has to take take on the, the financial risk of yeah. doing a lot of work finding tenants and having to do it again two months later. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could argue that it's the landlord's risk because it's their property and the agent is just an employee. But then on the other hand, you can say, well, it's the agent who's found the tenant who then lets the landlord down and leave. So why should the landlord have to pay for that? I think, I think we're going to see different agents doing very different things there. Yeah. And it's a good opportunity for, for, for a smaller agents to offer something a bit different. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. There's all sorts of knock-on consequences like this, which aren't aren't the headline for renters' reform because everyone's everyone's focusing on Section Twenty One, yeah. thinking directly, how am I going to get possession when I mm. when I need to? But then you you step on a bit and think, um, how is this going to uh, affect mortgage conditions? Like you said, um, and an agent um, charging structures, and there's there's all these. All these questions, where some some people have been putting a lot of thought into that already, mm. um, and others others not. Yeah, yeah. What other things are there in the bill that would be would impact? There's um, decent home uh, standards is is very interesting. I think it's yeah it's, that that hasn't been that's not part of the bill at the moment, is it? So there's a there's a bit more the the amendments. From uh, December, uh, which was the amendments made by government in at committee stage in the Commons, that gave us a little bit more detail, but it's still pretty thinly sketched. Hmm. The way it appears to me is what what will change as a result of that is landlords being on the hook to the council uh, with. Um, with penalty sanctions for properties being in in bad condition, whereas up until now there's been a, a risk of civil claims by the tenant, but unless it's an HMO where the HMO management regulations apply, well, really... there's a house, housing, health, and safety rating system inspections, and then they can serve an improvement notice. Oh, sure, but that that functions as a warning, so you're not. You might have to fix it, mm. but you're not going to be directly penalised until you've been given an enforcement, given an improvement notice, or or some other type of mm. um, notice, and then fail to comply with it. So the new rules would sort of shorten the time because there's a lot of administration for councils in doing the inspection, you know, contacting them, serving the notice, then doing the prosecution. That's a lot of paperwork and administration mm. that they have to do. 
So the the new regime would sort of cut a lot of that out then and make it make it easier for landlords to be penalised. Maybe it 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 would make it that the the landlord can be fined for not um, meeting the decent home standard before they have been told to go and fix it. Mm, yeah. So it, okay. it means it means it would mean it would mean landlords at at, at greater risk. Because at, at the moment, if you're if you if you've got an HMO and something's wrong with your uh, fire doors, let's say, mm-hmm. um, if the council come and do an unannounced inspection and um, look at your doors and decide that's a breach of the HMO management regulations, you've you've committed a criminal offence. Yeah, and they can so do something immediately. You, you can be, yeah, you can be you can be fined, and even if you go and fix it straight away, you still, still might still yeah. still, and that's that's what isn't there for non-HMO properties. Yeah. And I, I think that makes a big difference. Yes, it does, yeah. I think a lot of HMO landlords don't realise that. Mm. A lot of HMO landlords just think it's all about licensing. They don't realise the management regulations are there at all. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And it, it, I do sympathise to some extent because the regulations don't tell you what to do. They're not. They're not detailed in in telling you what what you need to do for your property. So yeah, I mean they, it, they say not, what it's what what the problem is though, don't they? I mean they the, the regulations themselves are pretty broadly mm, yeah maybe. sketched, and then to apply them in practice, you, you'd need to go and look at the LACOR's guidance, or go and talk to an expert, or um, there's another step in between. I I would I would say. But I mean, they should take training. I mean, this is this is the whole thing. I mean, being a landlord is is a very responsible thing. You're you're providing accommodation for people, mm. and a lot of landlords think you know they can just buy a property, let it out, you know, sit back, wait for money to drop into their bank account, and that's it. Whereas, you know, they, they want to do proper training about it and learn what their obligations are, because obviously, if you don't know an obligation exists, you're not going to do anything about it, are you? No, and I think people people are going to a sort of training they're they're going to get rich quick seminars and they're yeah. being told they're being told how to find tenants and how to do a rent to rent but they're not being told about about this a lot they're not of the being time. told about that and i mean for example there there have been horrific cases where landlords haven't known about the gas safety records and people have died mm. so uh it, it is important for for landlords to uh to do the proper training. I mean, that's one of the things that, that we do at Landlord Law. And, you know, your firm does as well, don't you? You do training as well. I never know quite how sceptical to be as well, because the, the reality is people make money from ignoring regulations. Mm. And, which is wrong. Which is wrong. And are they doing it because they didn't know about their obligations? Or did they choose to ignore yeah. them because it was just an extra expense? And, you know most of the time we'll never know well i mean that's why we need proper enforcement i mean the trouble is if you're a slightly dodgy dave type and you know that it's not going to be enforced are are you going to are you going to do these things i'm sure kate talked about property mot's yeah i think i think that's that's a a neat idea to to try and grapple with this issue Mm. because we we need it to be more clear-cut about whether or not the landlord has, has made a, a reasonable effort to have a property that's safe and meets the standards. And it, it is a bit of a jumble at the moment. I mean, mm. people people do sometimes make honest mistakes and we yeah. could make it we could make it simpler for landlords could, to, yeah. to know what they have to do. But yeah, for now, absolutely people need to go and do go and do training. Yeah find out what it is i mean there's plenty of training about you know i mean there's our services that do training there's the nrla there's there's various organizations that uh, that will provide training so it, it is out there just wondered um we're likely to have a labor administration do you have any thoughts on uh, on what they may bring should they be elected do you have any insights on that do you have any uh i think one of the big questions is are we going to see a housing bill two or three years into the next government mm. where they change 
elements of the grounds for possession. Because if Labour have a huge majority in the Commons, then really they can they can do what they like. Yeah. But passing legislation takes time. You mm. have to prioritise. Will it be a priority for a Labour government to go and make changes to the grounds for possession, which they're asking for now, but obviously can't can't get because they don't have a have a majority? Um, and that's something I, I I definitely don't know the answer to. Um, but as it stands, the the amended grounds for possession for some landlords are going to make thing make 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 life easier. Yeah, I mean they're not as bad. I don't think landlords should be as worried about the the, the um, certainly the the act has drafted because um, as you say, in some respect, it's um, it's going to be easier. A mandatory ground for possession for a landlord who wants to sell, yeah, is going to be much easier, yeah, than a Section Twenty One notice. And there's all there's been lots of talk about landlords relying on that ground fraudulently, but the re- reality is, lots of people get to a point where they want to sell. They want to sell with vacant possession. Yeah, they're they're going to find it much easier now. Yeah. So that that's one question, and then the the other one is about implementation because I, I'm. I'm convinced it's going to be a Labour government's job to actually put this into practice. So all the nitty gritty questions like, is there going to be a paper, a a paper based possession claim process? I think, I think almost certainly yes. So the the accelerated possession procedure um, is only section 21 notices so that that is that is gone i mean i think i've written about that on the blog in the past um i think i think that's something that could be done for certainly for rent arrears um i think it's i think it's probably inevitable that it exists to some extent particularly if 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 tenants choose not to defend cases yeah do we really need a hearing do we need to take up a judge's time yeah and do yeah, we no, need... absolutely. So I think the questions like that are are in all likelihood going to be decided by Labour ministers. Hmm. And the, these aren't these aren't the headlines right now, so there isn't necessarily a, a Labour position on all of these questions. So it, it really might come down to who is the actual individual who is the minister. Yeah, I mean I've tried to look into that. I mean I've had a look at the missions. Um, and they they don't really talk an awful lot about housing policy. They they tend to be about a lot of other things. I think they're going to tighten up the right to buy because one of the problems is that there, there, there really needs to be more social housing. You know, mm. if, we, if we had a lot of social housing, then a lot of problems would disappear because a lot of the people in private rented accommodation would be better off in social housing. Quite frankly, it's it's not appropriate for them to be there. And if they if there was more social housing then that would solve a lot of problems. So I think, I mean, I listened to an interview with Angela Rayner and they said, what's what's the thing that you're going to do? And she said, we're going to build lots of nice council houses. So, I mean, if that's their main priority to start with, I think that's a very good one. Mm, I think that's definitely a huge part of actually making progress with, with housing problems. Mm. And that's that's the level of ambition that we need, not just tinkering around with, rent repayment orders that's not really going to change anything no lots I mean, and lots I, and lots of council houses that's going to i mean i often think that what the what the current government are trying to do is they're trying to resolve with legislation things that can only actually really properly be resolved by putting a bit of funding into it and actually mm. doing something like putting local authorities into funds so they can properly enforce things and actually fund the building of council housing which could probably done reasonably quickly if they use modular housing, which it can be very good. But I mean, the the companies that were set up to do modular housing, they're going bust because they're not being used. Yeah, that's that's exactly the, the kind of business which needs investment, which needs clarity yeah. about about what's happening in the long term. So I'm not surprised that businesses like that aren't really functioning as they as they potentially could. Because you can, um, you know, modulating houses can be brilliant. You know, they can be very, 
um, you know, environmentally friendly, have all the sort of insulation and other standards built into the panels, you know, it could be really good. Right. Yeah. So let's let's wrap up with um with a bit of advice for landlords. If you were if you were advising landlords, what what are sort of like a couple of top tips that you give for landlords that is something that they should do now to protect their position for whatever happens in the future? Do you have any thoughts about what landlords a good a good ploy for landlords to do now? Possibly other than selling up. <laughs> um before the Homes Fitness for Human Habitation Act came in. Um, what we were saying to social landlords was, you're you're going to become subject to this this higher standard for property conditions. You know it's coming. Get on with preparing for it now. Mm. At least find out what is the condition of your property so that you're ready for this, and you can start prioritising um, and and getting on with that. For private landlords. Um, Decent home standards. No one is talking about dropping that from the renters' reform bill, and so there's never been a better time to, particularly if you've got a big portfolio and bits of it maybe are, are um, lower down uh, priorities for you for maintenance. Well, now is really the time to go and make sure you know exactly what's going on everywhere. Mm. Um, and that's really the same advice for HMO problems. Um, Knowing what's going on in the properties is is the key to avoiding avoiding problems. And I suppose and, that means regular inspections. I mean, landlords are often reluctant to do inspections, partly because they don't like to intrude on their tenants. But I think it's critical. How do you know what the problems are unless you go around there, you know, every three months or every six months and have a look? And looking at the, the tribunal case law as a whole, judges do not sympathise with landlords who had no idea what was going on and neglected their their properties. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, getting um, getting getting out there on the ground. Um, that's uh, yeah, that's that's my top tip. Okay then. Right. Thank you very much, Robin, for talking to me. Thanks, Heather. Uh, uh, thank always a pleasure. Everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening.